I'm ready when you are. Tell me when. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Palm Sunday here at Pottstown Bible Church. I'm going to ask you some questions to draw on the text. We're going to look at this topic of Palm Sunday. So here's some questions that I want to ask you to kind of draw you into this message this morning, and they're up on the screen on slide one. You can look look with me there at that message. Here are the questions. As we look this morning at the scriptures, let's ask ourselves some thoughtful questions. You're on the street with some of your friends, and they say, uh, what is Palm Sunday? What, what would your answer to that question be? Think about it. Why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? Why did Jesus ride on a donkey instead of a beautiful stallion? Here's another question this morning. I want you to think about it. If we were living back then, how would you and I have greeted him if we were there that day? Think about it. Whose side would we be on? The religious leader's side or as one of his followers? That's a really important question, church, to think about. Or have we too also, have we misunderstood Jesus' purposes? Think about it. We're praising him one day, and the next day we're cursing at him or we're putting him on trial. I know none of you have ever had that problem. So, But church, it's amazing that the crowd back then on Sunday was shouting Hosanna, and by that Friday they were shouting crucify him. Think about it. Which side would we have been on? So slide two. Let's look at. The text here, let's dig into what Mark's account of this is. In Mark 11, we're going to look at the first four verses and then kind of move through it this morning. So from the word of God. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. He said to them, I want you to go into the village that's opposite of you, and immediately as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied there. No one's ever sat on this colt. I need you to untie it. I need you to bring it here. And by the way, if anyone says to you, hey, why, why are you doing this? You are to say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it back here. So they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. So what do we have going on here, church? So here, we find ourselves at the final stages of Jesus' earthly ministry. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is on a Sunday. And here, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy that was recorded for us that was written, actually, slide 3, 500 years earlier, back in Zechariah 9.9. And by the way, this was the last public appearance of Jesus before he was to be crucified. And back in Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, 
humble, mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the full of a donkey. What do we see here? Now we see that the character and demeanor of Jesus was very much unlike that of the kings of the Old Testament. Unlike earthly kings, Jesus would do something they couldn't. He would uphold God's law. And the gentleness of Jesus made him very approachable. Key point. So this begs the question, well, why ride into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a stallion? You are the king of kings and lord of lords. We need to understand that going way back in time, back in those days, a stallion was a sign of war and the donkeys were signs of peace. So the donkey symbolized the humility that Jesus was trying to convey to them. Put up slide four. Let's look at verses five and six. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying this colt? Verse 6, they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. So what do we see here, church? Very important. Here we now see the disciples of Jesus carrying out the instructions he gave them. How are we carrying out the instructions Jesus gives us, church? Notice that every detail of the instructions they received from Jesus was carried out with complete accuracy. The untying of the colt. Bystanders asking why. Here we see something else. Here we see the supernatural knowledge of Christ now being put on full display. Slide 5. Jumping ahead there at verses 7 and 8 in Mark 11. <clears throat> so they bring the colt to Jesus. And they put their coats on the colt. And then Jesus sits on the colt. Now look at verse 7 and 8. Many spread their coats out on the road. Others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields, obviously out on the road. Here we now see the disciples placing their cloaks on the donkey as this like makeshift saddle. We also see some of them spreading their cloaks on the ground. Why? Well, what is significance about this? Why are you taking your coats and throwing them on the ground to be walked on? Is there any place in the Bible that we see this behavior practiced as a custom for kings? I'm glad you asked that question. How about 2 Kings 9.13, slide 6. Back in 2 Kings, this is Jehu. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps. The bare steps was kind of like this makeshift throne at the house of Jehu. They blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So, church, this was a ceremony that was used in the eastern parts towards their superiors. It was actually a token of reverence to his king or superior that they would not have his feet to touch the ground and that, listen, that they would put themselves and their concerns completely under the feet of the king and at his disposal. How about you and I? Now think about that. They put their concerns and their life at the disposal of the king. Do we show Jesus that kind of reverence and honor and respect? So what does Jesus then do? He then mounts on this unridden colt and he begins, this is Sunday, to ride in Jerusalem. At this point as he enters Jerusalem, the excitement begins to build. 
People began to spread out their garments on the road. Others began to place palm branches and leafy branches on the road. Something else to consider, palm branches, church, were also a sign of triumph and victory. Well, Pastor Jack, where does it say that? I'm glad you asked that question again. Slide 7. Let's hit Revelation chapter 7. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. This is what the Bible says. After these things I looked and beheld a great multitude which no one could count from every ethnos, that word nation is where we get the word ethnic from, from every ethnos, all tribes and peoples and languages. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's the God-man up in heaven. Clothed in white robes. And what were in their hands? Palm branches. And what did they do? They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne. And look at that copulative there. And to the Lamb. And I'll let Dr. Carter teach you about the Granville Sharps rule another day, but basically the God, the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Okay? Look at verse 9 and 10 with me, slide 8. Mark 11, 9 and 10. Those who went in front, those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord, or in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Notice the two groups of people there. Still on slide eight. Those who went in front, those who followed. Both groups were chanting, slide nine, the scriptures that were found back in Psalm 118. Verse 25 and 26. O Yahweh, do save, we beseech you. O Yahweh, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. What's important about this? Well, our English Bibles have the words do save. But it's actually the Hebrew word Hosanna. Now the word Hosanna, church, why do we say, why do we just, you know, we just don't want to do things just because they're to be done. We need to understand why we do what we do. Well, what's the significance of Hosanna? Well, the Hebrew word Hosanna was actually originally a prayer to God, which means, oh, save us now. So they were saying back in the Old Testament, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. As the ophthalmology of the word started to change, Later on in the text and then in the New Testament, it became a word that was used as a shout of praise to God. So back then, save us, Lord. Save us, Yahweh. Now we praise you. We praise you, Lord. And then the word blessed in verse 6, well, what does that mean? Well, the Jews of that day understood it to mean God's gracious favor and power to affect our lives to affect our lives, church. When we say the Lord bless you and keep you, we want the Lord to impact your life. But you need a relationship with him for that to happen, church. And then Mark eleven ten, he finishes up the coming kingdom 
of our father David. <clears throat> Here is now the place where we see the thinking of the Jews that's being now unpacked for you and I. And sadly, we see their ignorance. You see, church, this enthusiasm was really that they wanted this ruling Messiah and they wanted this political kingdom set up. They wanted to deal with the Romans at that time. This moment was really all about their Passover celebration. And they did not expect the fact or realize that the very one who was riding on the cult was their Messiah, was their Hosanna, the one that could save them now. And they didn't even recognize him when he was riding on the cult right in front of them into Jerusalem. Think with me this morning. God's kingdom was right in front of them, and they did not even recognize it. They had their own agenda. And we have to be careful that we don't try to play God and have our own agenda. How about it? God's kingdom is right in front of us as well today. Do we even recognize it? Are we living out kingdom life today? Well, what do you mean, Pastor Jack? Well, the Bible teaches us that God the Holy Spirit permanently indwells each of his believers, his followers. Do we recognize that? Church, Jesus appeared in the city just as he forewarned them that he would do. But he came to suffer and die, not to set up some rival kingdom to conquer Caesar. This Jesus, listen, who is the son of the living God, well, he's going to be crowned with thorns. He's going to be enthroned on a cross. He's going to be hailed the chief of fools. Think about that. Think deeply about that. Enthroned on a cross. And Mark shares with us through his gospel this horrible loneliness that Jesus experienced. Now, slide 10. What goes through your mind this morning as you think about his suffering and his death for you? <clears throat> Ask yourself these questions on Palm Sunday. And be honest with God. Do we give him the due worship that he really deserves? Or do other things in our homes preoccupy our minds and take so much of our attention away that God's lucky to get the leftovers? Oh, it's getting quiet now, Dr. Carter. Do, do, we, do we find ourselves just going through the motions like so many of those who laid down some palm branches as he passed through? We need to understand, Jesus did not come here to bring us glory. And what we need most of all from him is to save us now, Hosanna. Save us now, Lord. How often do we find ourselves, slide 10, abandoning him when trouble comes? It's so amazing how easy it is when trouble comes, how God becomes less than a whisper. It's sad to say, church, but most people want Jesus on their own terms, just like the Jews back then. Most people today, they want a Jesus that will give them wealth. <clears throat> prosperity, health, success, money. Look at me. Look at all that I've accomplished. Happiness in the trappings of this world. Like he's a magic genie and you rub it and you ask, give me three wishes, Lord. You know, they will come to church and they'll sing to Jesus as long as they think he will satisfy and meet all these selfish desires. But think about it. When those desires aren't met, how quickly we can put them on trial and denounce them. Isn't that the truth? 
What kind of Palm Sunday are we giving him today? And worst yet, when his word, the scriptures, confront sinful hearts and a simple way of life and a desperate need of a Savior, how many walk away because they don't want the real Jesus. They only want the God of their imaginations. That really leads us to think about who's really sitting on the throne of your heart today. Slide 11. Verse 11 of Mark 11. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he comes into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he leaves for Bethany with his 12. It was already late. So what do we have going on here? So Jesus is arriving in the temple. He's surveying the temple to see if it's being used as God intended it to be used. And we'll see in a moment how this led to his actions the next day. So the text reveals to us that he was with the twelve. And there, it seems like they were really watching all of this unfold. Slide 12. Look at verses 12 through 14. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he becomes hungry. <clears throat> yes, Jesus was a human being like you and I without sin. And he hungered and he thirsted. Seeing at a distance a fig tree that it was in leaf... He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Are there any figs on this tree? But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he speaks to the tree, and he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples were listening. It's kind of interesting how Mark places this event right here just before the cleansing of the temple. It would seem then that this event is placed here to help us understand the next event, which is in fact the cleansing of the temple. Just like this fig tree, which only flourished with leaves, Israel at that time flourished with the leaves of a cold, ritual religion. And Israel lacked the fruit of righteousness that God had demanded from Israel. So this fig tree becomes for us this visual parable Since the tree had leaves, one would expect it would bear fruit. But it didn't have any fruit. It only gave the illusion that it had fruit. Pretending to be what it wasn't. It was pretending to bear fruit, just like the religious leaders of that day. Doesn't that sound so familiar today, church? From a distance, they may look like the real thing, but as you get closer to them, what do you find? Look at slide 13. Ask yourself the question. As folks get closer to you and I, what do they see? What do they hear coming out of your mouth? How do they hear you talking about the Lord? Do they see you bearing any fruit from the Lord as evidence that Christ indwells you? Oh, it's got quiet again, Dr. Carter. Hmm. You see, just as Jesus was seeking fruit from the fig tree, our Heavenly Father, who owns the vineyard, seeks fruit from you and me. Because He is the vine and we are the branches. The tree gave the false impression that it had fruit, just as the temple back in Jesus' day gave the impression that it was a place dedicated to serve the Lord. 
Slide 14, here's some more questions. And these are not easy to ask, but I asked myself before I asked you. Do we resemble the fruit tree in some way? Are we pretending to be something we're really not? Do, listen, church, listen. Do we find ourselves practicing this image maintenance? Looking all churchy on the outside, but we come in here and we're barren in our hearts when it comes to producing any fruit for the Lord? Remember, church, fruit on the tree reveals the tree's real identity. Actions expose a personal person's real inner character. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. So, slide 15. We'll do verses 15 through 17. So then they come to Jerusalem. They enter the temple. He enters the temple. And he begins to drive out those who are buying and selling in the temple. He overturns the table of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. It wasn't a Disney trip. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written? Notice how the Lord goes right to the word. Is it not written? <clears throat> My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. You read Revelation 7 a little earlier. You've made it a robber's den. So what do we see going on here? Let me try to unpack this for you so we really kind of get the gist of what the deal is here. You see, back then, the people who were going to the temple to make sacrifices, that's why they were going. And it was far more convenient for them to purchase an animal for their sacrifice instead of bringing one from long distance and then being unsure if the animal would even past the inspection of the high priest. Also, the men who were selling the animals for sacrifice, they really belonged to the hierarchy of the priests and the authorities of that day and actually paid fees to be able to operate their vending businesses there in the temple. Mm, think about that. So the, clearly the priests were financially benefiting from this. And then we have these money changers of that day. So think about it. They come in. They don't want to bring the animal because if the priest says, ah, oh, it doesn't pass, what are they going to do? So they come with money, and they come in there, and they're, they're going to buy the pre-approved animals. Mm. A lot going on. So the money changers. They would be the ones that would exchange the Greek and Roman coins for every male age 20 and older who would need to pay for temple services. Yeah, they had to pay for temple services. The money changers charged a very hefty fee for converting their coins. And so the temple was acting more like this commercial business service rather than what God intended it to be used for. <clears throat> also, Jesus did not want to see the merchandise being carried through the temple, like I said, like it was some type of Disney vacation or something. It was very disrespectful to the Lord. He didn't want the temple to be used as some place for greedy business to be going on. So he, he overturns the money tables. He was tired of the extortion going on in God's house. All this activity going on created an audience where then Jesus belts it out. Slide 16. My house 
shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. It's a place of worship to honor the glorify the Lord. It's not a place for commerce. Isaiah 56, 7. That's what Jesus was quoting from. He, again, he's quoting scripture. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of what? Prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the people. This begs the question, okay. Somebody walks up to you, your friend, and says, hey, can you tell me what prayer is? What is prayer? Who are you talking to? I can't see him. What is prayer? Church, prayer is you talking to God. When you open up your scriptures, this is God talking to you. This is the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. You want to hear God's still small voice? Then read the Bible softly out loud to yourself. Because everything that God would want to say, he said it here. This is it. And when you are doing this, there's no conversation going back and forth. You're cutting off God speaking to you. The Holy Spirit, as I've said a million times, never works independently from the Word. The Holy Spirit will illuminate that Word in you, and you will hear from God. So think about prayer. Prayer is talking to you, or God. Prayer is you talking to God. So the Hebrew word Jesus used for prayer has the idea of interceding or a plea of petition. We talk about intercessory prayer. We're praying for somebody on behalf, whether they're sick or have a need. Do you do that regularly for people? Do you do it regularly for people? You know, it's the same word that David's used back all the way back in Psalm 4 where David is asking God not to be deaf at his suffering and turmoil. Have any of us ever felt that God is deaf when we're going through it? Here's, that's the lie from the devil. You see, when you're going through it, that's when God is beginning to do most of his work where he finally gets your attention. Because when things are going good and you got some jingle, that check came at the beginning of the month, all of a sudden, who's God? Where's God? Who is he? But when that jingle start getting empty, all of a sudden, oh boy. Uh-oh. I'm meddling now, Pastor. <laughs> so prayer is offering up of our desires to God. What does the Bible teach about prayer? Now this is not this is going to be a very truncated short thing on prayer, but it'll give you some points right through scripture. What is the right way to pray? Well, slide 17. We are to pray in the name of Jesus. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, not Allah's name, not Charles Taze Russell's name, my name, my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified with who? In who? The Son. It don't get any clearer than that. We don't pray to statues. We don't pray to dead people. 
We don't need to look at the shows that are on TV where somebody's talking to Uncle Eddie who's already died and where's the money you left us? No. That's foolishness. And if you go home and read Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 8 to 14, we are forbidden to do that. So we're to pray in the name of Jesus. Number two, we are to confess our sins. Psalm 32.5, I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. Let, let's make sure we look at that, church. Of course, 1 John 1.9 is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Old Testament, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't have sin of, of um, uh, you know, I had uh, attrition where I'm only upset and irritated and sorry because I got caught. This is a prayer of contrition, a contrite heart. I acknowledge my sin, my iniquity. I didn't hide my iniquity from you. He says, I will hamagaleo. I will confess my transgression to Yahweh. The response is what? And you what? Forgave the guilt of my sin. So we are to pray in the name of Jesus. We are to confess our sins. Slide 18. We are to pray in thankful acknowledgement of God's mercy towards us. Philippians 4, verse 6. Oh boy, oh, this is going to make us uncomfortable here, church. Be anxious for nothing. Amen. Let me say that one again. Amen. But Pastor Jack, you don't understand. There's more bills at the end of the month of rent, Pastor Jack. <gasps> and yet, what does the Bible say? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with a grateful heart, being thankful, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Prayer, supplicating, giving thanks. Let your requests be known to God. Don't be asking God and not believing that he's not going to be the one that answers the prayer. God's answers are going to be yes, no, or not now. Number four, we are to pray for our enemies. Oh, boy. Uh-oh. Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies. Like, what? 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 Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Ouch. You, you know, when he says pray for your enemies, believe it or not, you're the one that he's getting the benefit. You're the one whose heart he's changing. See, that's all about God changing your heart. How about number five? We are to pray with a penitent heart. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you won't despise it. So God's not going to despise when our spirit is broken and there's nothing left and all the pride is out of the way and your heart is contrite. You see your sin for what it is. You're grieving over your sin. You're turning from it and you're walking in obedience with the Lord. And then let's move on to slide 19. Almost done. 
Mark 11, 20 and 21. And as they were passing by in the morning, <clears throat> they saw the fig tree had been withered up from its roots. Being reminded, Peter said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Notice how thorough the text is. The fig tree was literally withered up from the roots up. What does that tell you, church? It indicates a complete destruction and death. Even though Jesus did not completely explain this event, most theologians feel that this was a vivid picture of the impending judgment on Israel from the Lord. And then slide 20. Mark 11, 22 through 24. Jesus responds, Have faith in God. Have faith, not in our government, not in our political system. Have faith in God. By the way, God is not caught off guard with all the nonsense going on. God's not like, oh, geez, what am I going to do now? Oh, my gosh. God knew this was going to happen before he created time. Because he knows the end from the beginning all at the very same time. Because he's omniscient. He knows it all. What does he say in verse 23, 24? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. First, what does this word doubt mean? What does it mean to doubt? Now, I want you to think about the very God that gives you a heartbeat, that knits you in your mother's womb, that's given you life. Think about the word doubt. Diakrino is the Greek word. It means, the idea of doubt here means to separate something thoroughly, to discriminate. Skeptical. There's a lack of conviction. There is withdrawing from. So you're separating or withdrawing from something completely. So when you doubt God, you're saying, I don't believe you. I am withdrawing from you. I am going to look for blessings in the land of idols instead of having faith in you, which is what you told me to do back in verse 22. Now ask yourselves, be honest. How does your doubting God show up in your life? Slide 21, think about it. When things don't go the way we want them to go, or something bad happens, do we find ourselves separating from God? God, you don't love me. If you love me, you wouldn't let that happen to me, God. Do we have a lack of conviction that what he tells us in his word, we just don't believe? Do we doubt his word? When you doubt his, his word and you separate from him, your house is built on sand, not on the rock. And every time the waves of the world come smashing at you and slamming at you, what's going to happen? The ruin is great because it wasn't founded on the rock. Maybe we have a skeptical attitude towards him. He didn't answer our prayer at the time we needed it, so therefore we doubt him. <clears throat> Got quiet again, Dr. Carter, I don't know. Or perhaps we don't like what's happening in our lives, <clears throat> so we withdraw from him, and we're looking for blessings elsewhere. 
But Jesus is telling them not to doubt in their hearts, not to separate from him, not to have uncertainty, not to have a lack of conviction. He says, have faith in God. Here, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to walk by faith and not by sight. Pastor Jack, what, what did Jesus mean when he used the word pistis or the word faith? So what is faith? Church, faith is an unwavering trust and confidence in God. <clears throat> it, it has all the flavor, church, uh, of certainty and stability. You see, faith is the absence of doubt. Faith accepts what God says as good as done, even though the answer we seek may be in the future. So when we speak of the faithfulness of God, we mean that God is absolutely worthy of our trust and confidence in Him. Believe it or not, He's never, ever, ever let you down. We let Him down every time we doubt. We spit in His face every time we doubt. And yet He still is faithful even though we're not. He is absolutely worthy of our trust and confidence. Listen, we can always depend on God without having to doubt or having any reservation. He will always come through. And listen, God's plans are always going to be better for your life and my life than our plans. I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he was telling his disciples, listen, have faith. So where does faith come from? Faith is a gift from God. We don't have a faith manufacturing facility in here. The very faith you need to believe the gospel and repent is a gift from God to you. Slide 22. I, I, this is from a document, a very solid document called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's an old document, but this answers. This is their answer. What is true faith? Look at this with me. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in His Word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in you and me by God the Holy Spirit through the Eugalian, the Gospel, that out of sheer grace earned for you and I by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven and have been made right forever with God and have been granted salvation. I've never found that statement more accurate when it comes to true faith than that. Think about it. Created in you and I by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Faith comes in by hearing and hearing by the word. Sheer grace earned for us. There's nothing that you and I can do on our own to make ourselves right with God. Jesus paid it all. He did it all. Slide 23. One other statement from the same document especially if you're going through some stuff right now. What is our only comfort in life and death? No, it's not the federal government. It's not the check. What is our only comfort in life and death? Because someday we're all going to draw our last breath here on earth. Here's, here's our comfort in life and death. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in my life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood. He is the one that set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He is the one that watches over me in such a way that not even a hair can fall from my head 
without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life, and he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Can that be said about you and I? Think about that statement. If you were to drop dead this afternoon, think about the people that woke up yesterday and they are no longer with us today. If you were to drop dead this afternoon and you were ushered before the beam of seat of the Lord and he was to look at you and say, why should I let you into heaven? Think about what your answer, because your answer has all the implications of whether you're born again or not. Think about it. What would you say to him? You know, would you would you say, "Well, Lord, I was a good person." No, you weren't. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All have gone astray. All have turned aside. Read Romans three eleven through fifteen. All have turned aside. All have gone astray. All have gone their own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's no act that I can do to make myself righteous with the Lord. The only righteousness I have is what is imputed to me from Jesus Christ. He took every sinful, filthy, rotten, horrible thing that you and I have ever done and he placed it on Christ and he took this perfect life of obedience and he credits it to your account. So the only reason you go into glory is because of what he's accomplished on your behalf for you. There's none righteous, no, not one. So think about it. There's only one correct answer to that question. It's because your son Jesus died and spilled his blood to wash away the filth and guilt and sin in my life. And that blood is so powerful that it continually cleanses us. Past, present, future. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. It's Palm Sunday. What kind of branches are you waving? I want you to think about it, church. This is an important question. You, 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 you get hit by a car. You, you have a heart attack. Something happens to you, and there's no longer any breath in your lungs. Think dearly. Think, brothers and sisters, about it. Our time is coming. Where are you going to spend eternity? At the precious age of 60, I know the years ahead are much less than the years behind for me. Are you willing to make every moment of your life count for something? You don't want to go out on a pension. You want to go out with a purpose. What kind of message and life song is your life to the people that God has brought into your life? Because of who you are, do they want to know more who He is? Do they see that the actions and behaviors of your life reflect that you really are in love with Him? That He is your God? When things are really, really going bad, are you willing to cling to His renewing work? When things are going bad, He's at work. It's the opposite of what the devil makes you think. The devil makes you think that he's abandoned you and walked away. But if you're suffering and you're calling out to him, I can assure you that he has a purpose for your life and he has a purpose in the suffering. If you're suffering and you're calling out to him, they could be some of the sweetest moments you could ever imagine in your life. So if you were here this morning and the Lord is knocking on your heart, if he is wooing you and calling you and he's woken you up spiritually, I want to encourage you 
to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as He has been so freely offered to you in the gospel. There's nothing in your hands you can bring simply to the cross you can claim. The cross is where it all happened for you. The cross. That's where the blood was spilled. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're hurting, turn to Him. Trust Him. I can tell you He will never let you down. Look up and receive the Lord's blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance.